Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello, Critic listeners, and welcome to this week's podcast. He won a large majority in last December's election, but with his judgment and performance increasingly questioned, is Boris Johnson the wrong man to be leading government? Simon Heffer, Professor of Modern British History at Buckingham University and a columnist for the Sunday and Daily Telegraph, argues that the Prime Minister is unsuited to the job. And Graham Stewart also talks to Professor Jeremy Black, Senior Fellow at Policy Exchange, about how British history is taught at schools and universities. Is there still a national story? It's been a difficult fortnight for Boris Johnston. Lacklustre performances at Prime Minister's Question Times and at Downing Street's briefings, and then questions of judgment in his standing by his adviser, Dominic Cummings. Is this just passing turbulence in the midst of a storm that was not of his making, or is it a, a, a clearest sign yet that Boris Johnson is the wrong man? Uh, Simon Heffer, for this month's edition of The Critic, you have written... Uh, an article about Boris Johnson um, saying that he's the wrong man for this pandemic. Uh, but you've known him in a journalistic capacity for uh, many years now, and you, you write of him, you say, the Prime Minister is an indolent man for whom the exercise of power is a recreation or an indulgence rather than a duty. Um, can you give instances from your experience to, to back up that, that uh, damning verdict? Well, I mean, certainly when he worked for me, there were occasions where he was supposed to be in the office doing some work and just didn't turn up. Um, uh, I well remember uh, having a day off myself and watching a cricket match uh, on a Friday because I had edited the paper the previous Sunday. And um, I got a telephone call from the subs at about five o'clock asking when I was coming to the office to um, sort the page out. And um, I, I said, well, I'm not. Uh, Boris is in charge. And he said, well, he's not here. And that's just one thing that sticks in the memory. He was notoriously unprofessional. Um, I remember him not turning up at a party conference uh, for several days because he had to write up uh, an article. Uh, and it was an interview with Chris Patton that he'd been to Hong Kong to do. He'd been to Hong Kong six months earlier to do this interview and still hadn't written it up. And that was interesting for not turning up at this party conference uh, in Blackpool. So, I mean, I, I could bore your listeners all day with stories of him, but just suffice it to say that he struck me as an entirely unprofessional, unserious person. So how is it that uh, someone with this record uh, and attitude has uh, found himself um, as, as the head of the British government? Well, he's very good at taking people in. I mean, I remember after one incident, uh, I was the editor of the Daily Telegraph, asking Max Hastings, the editor, to sack him. And I was told by Hastings that he was uh, somebody who hadn't got into the gaiety of nations and uh, contributing a lot to uh, the paper. Um, I found these things hard to believe at the time. I found it impossible to believe now. And um, I now see Hastings writing all over the place, um, uh, saying that uh, he uh, really wishes that uh, he'd finish Johnson's career off and he had a chance to do so. So he's, he's very good at manipulating people and very good at taking people in. And uh, he is utterly unscrupulous. 
uh, and will use that lack of scruple to just basically deceive people about his um, his abilities. Um, and this is all 25 years ago. He may have had a, a magic um, transformation since I last worked with him, but uh, I very much doubt it. And the fact that he needed, I think, eight deputy mayors to be mayor of London suggests that he, he's still not somebody who applies himself properly to the job. And I think what we've seen in the last few days is addiction to Dominic Cummings. Um, everybody says, well, what has what Dominic Cummings got on him? Well, I think Dominic Cummings has got anything on him. I think Dominic Cummings is simply the man who runs the government. And Johnson knows that if he doesn't have Cummings there, uh, the government won't run. And so when we're hearing rumours that, that Dominic Cummings actually might go of his own volition at the end of the year, once the, the Brexit transition period comes to a close. Uh, I mean, that, that may just be a smokescreen to throw us off the scent now, but uh, if that were to happen, w how, how do you see things panning out for the Prime Minister? Well, I believe, I believe Cummings going of his own volition when I see it. Uh, I think if Cummings left, Johnson would really struggle, because not least on... It appears Cummings' is, um, uh, recommendation, he was appointed possibly the most untalented cabinet in British uh, political history. I mean, I am a historian. I can't think of any cabinet that has had uh, fewer highly qualified, highly intelligent, highly able people in it than this one. And that appears to be a deliberate uh, ploy by uh, Johnson and Cummings to maintain control of people. And when you see the way that cabinet ministers have been wheeled out obediently um, over the last um, few days to say how absolutely marvellous Cummings is and how, of course, he didn't break any rules at all by doing what he did, um, you understand immediately why it's useful uh, to this government to have patches um, sitting in the cabinet. But if you have Patsy sitting in the cabinet, when things get really difficult and uh, decisions, important decisions have to be taken, these people are not able to do it. And you know, to an extent, we've seen this during this present crisis um, because there doesn't appear to have been any serious analysis by any ministers of, um, of what should be done or, or in, in, in terms of scientific advice. Um, I know that most cabinet ministers don't have a science degree, but most of them are supposed to be uh, intelligent, able people who can evaluate advice and decide whether or not it's the right thing to do. Now, I think one reason we had lockdown so late is that a decision was taken not to have lockdown, and then there was a panic, and Johnson and Cummings said, well, we better have lockdown. And it was either better to do it immediately, or probably like Sweden not do it at all. Um, but, again, there was no cabinet. They weren't consulted. You know, one year's this. And they simply weren't consulted. There was no cabinet input to take that decision or to make that decision watertight. So um, if Cummings goes and Johnson is thrown back on the uh, so-called abilities of his cabinet, he's either going to have to have a cabinet reshuffle and bring in people who would challenge him and who have minds of their own, or he's going to have to go to hell in a handcart. It's one or the other. Um, a Prime Minister can, can only uh, deal with the hand of cards he has. Is the weak cabinet, as you see it, just a reflection of, of a dearth of, of talent uh, in the senior ranks of the party at, at the moment? Well, that's certainly true to an extent, although there are people on the back benches who, um, I won't name them before you ask me because I think it's a really difficult careers. Uh, but there are people on the back benches who are highly able. Some of them have held office already. 
uh, and didn't do a bad job when holding office. And, of course, um, they've been either kept out of government or they've been kept in the lower reaches of the government, uh, precisely because they do have that experience and intellectual ability to challenge uh, a third-rate prime minister and his third-rate advisors. So um, I don't think it's entirely the fault of the Tory party. Also, there are a lot of people in the House of Lords who are quite good. And in a national crisis such as this, I don't think anybody would object to another couple of ministers coming from the House of Lords um, and, uh, and are doing a good job in the, in the cabinet. Um, but again, that doesn't appear to be considered. Uh, you, you said he's, he's picked deliberately a, a weak cabinet uh, and that that cabinet hasn't dealt effectively with the scientific advice it received. Um, but I, I wonder whether previous cabinets might also have struggled. I mean, there, there weren't, from memory, a, a very large number of science degrees in uh, either um, John Major's or Margaret Thatcher's cabinets. Uh, they, they might, too, have struggled to grasp what is, by, by any um, measure, a, a, a very difficult um, pandemic to deal with? Well, let's not forget Mrs. Thatcher herself had a science degree um, from Oxford, so she would never be patsy on that front. But as I said earlier, it's not about having a science degree, it's about having common sense and deliberative powers and experience to sit down and work out what to do with the advice you get. And there's too much evidence from the last uh, couple of months that the government has simply borne the impression of the last scientist to sit on it, uh, which is why they've changed their minds over lockdown. Now, lockdown may have been the right thing to do, but if that is the case or was the case, it should have happened at once. Um, it shouldn't have happened you know, quite some time in, uh, as it did. And um, I, I, I say it's not about having a science degree. It's about having a sense of authority as a cabinet minister to, to contribute to discussions and to challenge decisions. And I simply don't think this cabinet is up to that. That may be, but let's assume we have a cabinet reshuffle and, and some of the talent that you see on, on the back benches is promoted. Uh, and let's assume that, that the Prime Minister finds himself challenged in, in the cabinet in the future. Looking at his character, how, how would he cope do you think, with, with being challenged and with dealing with serious advice? Is he someone who can actually take advice, or is he indifferent to it? Well, he obviously can take advice, because otherwise Cummings wouldn't be so powerful as he is. Um, I mean, Thompson does nothing, apparently, but take advice from Cummings. Uh, and why Cummings should uniquely be the man that Johnson has decided is the most brilliant man in Britain to do this is beyond me and I think beyond most people who look at the way this government is operating. Uh, and you only have to see one of Cummings's, I believe, more recent decisions, which is about this insane 14-day quarantine. Uh, and to, to impose the quarantine now is mad. To impose it on people who are, generally speaking, healthy is mad. Um, and you will destroy the travel industry once and for all, particularly the aviation industry, uh, if it persists, because nobody who wants to take a two-week holiday has got six weeks free if they're going back to work to take a two-week holiday, two weeks uh, to, uh, to quarantine when they get where they're going, two weeks to have their holiday, and then two weeks to quarantine when they come back. So um, he does take advice, but he, again, he doesn't seem to bother to evaluate it. Um, what I, what I think is happening at the moment, and I get this from talking to a number of Conservative MPs over the last two or three weeks, um, is that the, uh, 
the way he has run this has caused the scales to fall from their eyes. Uh, you only have to see the last number. It's about a quarter of the backbenchers who have come up publicly and said that Cummings has behaved uh, wrongly and badly. These are people who no longer worry about confronting the Prime Minister and about disagreeing with him. And they, they, they no longer worry about it because they know they, they have their emperor's clothes moment. They see that while he might technically have achieved Brexit, although I believe that when we actually believe finally at the end of the year, if we leave at the end of the year, um, that he isn't actually any good at doing anything else. And I had a long conversation uh, while I was researching the piece of the critic with uh, a very senior peer who had not only given money to Johnson's campaign as, uh, for leadership, but had uh, helped raise money for it. And his disillusion was unbelievable. Uh, he said, I hadn't realized he was so utterly incapable of doing anything else. And um, so what will happen if he has a cabinet reshuffle and people start challenging him is he will become less and less self-confident. Uh, the, the country will look at the Conservative Party and become more and more aware even when it is now, after recent uh, events, that he is not well run. And the Conservative Party uh, on the backbenches will start to talk about whether they've got the right leader. Now, I'm not for a moment saying there's going to be a leadership contest this year or possibly even next year. But the erosion of his reputation as a leader has, is underway. It has started. And it's not looking good for him. And I suppose if things get really bad for him, really difficult, he might even decide to do an Anthony Eaton and just say, well, I'm going on a cruise and not coming back for a long time. I don't know. Um, but certainly the easiest days of his premiership are over. And he will not recover from this easily in the eyes of the British public. And they will have a vote when the next election comes. Uh, because not least, he won't recover easily from this in the eyes of his own party. Uh, one last question, if I may, uh, uh, Professor Heffer. Uh, many of the faults that you find in Boris Johnson, uh, might you not also have made them to President Reagan, who was uh, you know, not a hard-working man, uh, be fair to say, lazy in, in a number of ways, um, you, uh, didn't confront some truths close to home, but was a very successful two-term president? Well, I spent some time in Washington during the, uh, the second term of Reagan's presidency, and he did run a form of cabinet government. Uh, it was, um, you know, people who served in Reagan's administration uh, had an input into what was going on, and he was very good at taking their advice. Reagan knew that he was, uh, to an extent, a front man, what presidents are, but he also knew that there were people around him who were cleverer than he was more experienced in politics than he was, and at taking political executive decisions than he was. And he relied on them. And uh, he did a pretty good job, as you have said. Uh, but what Reagan didn't do was have one man sitting in Downing Street giving him orders, or in his case the White House, giving him orders about what he should do and how he should run the country. Um, it was a much more collegiate atmosphere. And I think what we have seen that has been so damaging to this country in the last um, six or eight weeks is a complete absence of cabinet government. Don't take my word for it. Look at any of the um, re big reports that have been done to in Sunday papers over the last uh, six or eight weeks. You've got one cabinet minister after another saying we're not consulted. 
We're not taken seriously. We're not brought into these conversations. And you have a cabinet for a purpose. It isn't just that each minister runs his or her own department. It's also that uh, they contribute to a collegiate discussion to try and reach the best possible policy. Now, it seems the only discussion that's happened of any note in cabinet in recent days has been an order going out from Boris Johnson and or Dominic Cummings to go out and defend Dominic Cummings. Now, if that's the limit of, of what the cabinet is there for, we're finished. Well, Professor Heffer, uh, your article, Boris's Corona Catastrophe, is in this month's edition of The Critic magazine. Uh, as ever, really illuminating to talk to you, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Well, the teaching of British history is a central area of the uh, cultural wars and the battlegrounds both in the classroom and more widely. Uh, Jeremy Black, you were one of the advisors serving on the committee that framed the national curriculum. Uh, what, what were the parameters of uh, framing British history uh, at, at school level and how is that changing? Well, yes, I sat on the committee that helped revise it in the early two teens when Michael Gove was Secretary of State for Education. Um, I think, first of all, that once you have a national curriculum, which was a development, obviously, that is associated with the um, Kenneth Baker um, in the late uh, uh, 20th century, once you have a national curriculum, clearly that that focuses even more attention on, as it were, the political element of what one might call history wars. Uh, history wars were a phrase used to describe the way in which the teaching of history and the presentation of the nation's past appeared to be increasingly politicized in the late 20th century. And indeed, history seems of all the subjects to be the most contentious. Uh, Michael Gove told me when he was Secretary of State for Education that the subject on which the department received the most representation from members of the public about the teaching thereof was in fact history, uh, followed by English, but he said with history having a clear lead. And as we can see at any one moment, whether we are dealing with the specific, um, as it were, issues such as decolonization, which we've already described on the Critic Online, or indeed more general questions as to what ought to be included and what is reasonable to expect um, young people to know at particular ages. These are issues on which people have very different opinions. And uh, did Michael Gove share with you the, the nature of the correspondence he received? Were, were people complaining that, that there wasn't enough traditional uh, British history, kings and queens and battles and so on, or were they wanting a, a, a broader social and cultural history? Well, people very rarely writing to government or any other institution in order to offer praise. But I think it's fair to say that there was a sense of uneasiness about the extent to which uh, part of the teaching of the past seemed to lead, leave a very episodic account of British history and in sometimes a negative ha account. And I think it's fair to say that that remains an anxiety at the present day. Uh, one can see, for example, the recent controversy 
about the um, idea that the uh, Mayflower um, uh, you know, settlement of Massachusetts should not be celebrated because it represented a stage in the slave trade, etc., etc., which of course is complete rubbish. It didn't. Uh, the um, and obviously there's a big difference between elements that are within the education system, which are, shall we say, offering a particularly partisan account, and uh, the situation when you just have ordinary members of the public um, making remarks that might be regarded as vacuous or ill-informed. And on that point of cultural wars, which, if anything, have intensified uh, in, in the last few years, is it even really acceptable now to talk about British history in a singular term. Should we be, or, or are we being asked to think of it as British histories, uh, as if that there is not one cohesive narrative? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, the notion of British histories, of what was called for a while Four Nations history, um, was one that uh, developed several decades ago and was clearly linked to uh, the rise of, in particular, Scottish uh, separatism, Scottish nationalism, if you like. Um, and that enjoyed a certain amount of traction. I mean, it has its limitations. I've written a number of histories of the British Isles and Britain, and what I've pointed out in them is that one of the problems with Four Nations history is that you end up, for example, devoting far too little attention to different experiences within England. I mean, England proportionately, uh, certainly uh, even more the case since the uh, Irish famine of the mid-19th century, um, is, you know, is overwhelmingly is numerically proportionate and it does seem slightly bizarre that you as it were should give so much more weight to or might give so much more weight to the history of Scotland than shall we say to uh, the history of uh, the Midlands in England um, but you know those would be a matter of opinion and obviously Scots listening to this will not concur but I think that your basic point which is that um, offering, as it were, history as a cacophony of competing voices does not make it easier for people to see a central narrative is true. And on top of that, there are analytical points that are the case whichever part of the British Isles or of Britain or whatever, the United Kingdom or whatever unit you wish to offer. So, for example, over the last 150 years, we have seen secularization, we've seen urbanization, we've seen the growing the growth of government. Um, you know, we've seen changing attitudes towards women, the young. Uh, we've seen uh, ethnic change. Now, these are all elements that are the case, whichever part of the British Isles you're talking about. And then if you exclude the Republic of Ireland, um, all parts of the United Kingdom were involved in World War II. Um, they were all part of what was a colonial or imperial power, and they were therefore all involved in decolonization. They were all involved in economic, relative economic uh, transformation, and in some cases, decline. So all of these are points that are germane, whatever you are going to talk about in terms of Britons. And I do think there's a degree of faddishness. And I also think that, I mean, in a way, history is interesting because it is so porous a subject. It is one that is so open to everybody's views and opinions. I mean, as we know, 
um, you only need a medical controversy, MMR, for example, and you will have a, uh, a whole host of so-called experts shooting up who are, in fact, just shooting their prejudices out. Um, but history exemplifies that more than most. And you will notice that uh, the BBC, that sort of rather egregious custodian of the nation's memory, it would like to think, is quite happy to de- to offer anybody up as a historian, as long as they locate a prejudice le- uh, selected to be in the past. And I wonder, though, whether... Um if we look at the fracturing of the central narrative, uh, we, we can look at um, uh, Scottish and other Celtic nationalisms and you know, d- different experiences through immigration and so on. But uh, th- there's also one other thing which has um, uh, acidically uh, eaten away in that, and it's actually uh, in many ways associated with um, uh, some Tory historians, and that is a, an attack on the, the Whig interpretation of history, this idea that British history is a progress uh, at any rate from the the period of the glorious revolution in 1688-89, a series of wise and uh, benevolent reforms leading to Britain's status as as top nation. Um, I I, I wonder whether the more historians have picked apart that narrative, that they've made a cohesive teaching of British history uh, uh, almost impossible. Well, that's fascinating. Let me just tell you several points you make there. First of all, when you use that phrase, top nation, I mean, that is a caricature of the Whig approach, as you know. And um, the I'm not a Whig, uh, but even the Whig historians were well aware that there were contrasting elements of British history and of the British present, whether it was located in terms of politics or another topic that interested them greatly, which, of course, is religion. So the idea idea that in in the past there was some sort of homogenous uh, entity which was held up to have existed and that there has therefore been a complete failing from that. No, I wouldn't go that far. But what I would say is that um, history as understood as a chronological process, um, that in other words you should encourage people to to uh, have some sort of sense in this country, the world, whatever unit you wish to choose, as to why and how it is different than 500, 1,000, 1,500, and 2,000. I think that was more significantly a part of the teaching of the subject at both school and university, and indeed, for example, museums or galleries, than the present approach, which is increasingly a sort of hodgepodge account of the past, in which you are offered uh, documents, texts, Uh, exhibits in museums without really much understanding of context and in the idea being that these themselves and understanding these illuminate history which I think is is a very uh, difficult account so to me the problem is not so much whether we have or whether we had have or have dismantled a Whig superstructure and underlying structure the problem for me is that most people do not have a clear idea of change 
change that has occurred through time. Uh, we can then debate, if you like, or use as a teaching tool a discussion of what that meant for particular people. Uh, but, you know, it is helpful if people have, understand that, you know, the Victorian age was 1837 to 1901, that during that period uh, we were a major industrial and imperial power, uh, that we extended the franchise, that what this meant, etc., etc. Uh, you, know, you know, all of those remarks do not need to take a particular tone, but I mean, I would argue that there is value in adopting a, a expectation of content. Now, you also ask the very separate question, which is, have the academics destructiveness, which is what you were implying, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you, though I would make that more complex, uh, had the academics destructiveness, as it were, contaminated the, um, the public understanding of history. And I would say, well, I think that possibly exaggerates the importance and self-importance of academics. I would think that most um, students at school level who, um, as it were, are taught history are more affected by the um, issues and ideas of the teachers that uh, communicate with them. And I'm not so sure that those people have always been necessarily tremendously influenced by academic history as opposed to being uh, influenced by particular pedagogic ideas and a, a sort of, you know, uh, a strand of what is taught in PGCs and and the and BEDs and the equivalent. So you know, I'm I'm not got any particular briefing for what I think is often been a very foolish approach to national history at the level of universities, with on the whole a failure to engage adequately with political with politics, with high politics in particular, with foreign policy, with the role of religion, um, with an often very faddish um, aspect of identity. Politics. I think those are all. That is all a reasonable charge. But I think the major failing is, is at the school level because most people doing history will never read a book by a university historian, and in many cases that's very wise of them because those books are often uh, hedged around with so much to do with methodology uh, that they're rather difficult even for specialists to follow. Has this methodological approach at university level started to? Um, uh, manifest itself, though, in school textbooks. But to a degree, I mean, you know, I, I put it to you, Graham, have you ever read, I unfortunately have, because I had to write a couple of books on historiography, some of the absolute nonsense pushed out by the British academic exponents of postmodernism. Now, that stuff is really difficult to follow. <laughs> I, think, I don't think anybody could really expect a 14-year-old to pick it up. I mean, what I think the problem is... We we think back to the sort of age of, you know, the history boys and the idea of um, enlightened school teachers encouraging really bright uh, boys and girls to be interested in the past. Uh, and many of the, you know, when I was a, did A level, you know, I, I read um, the works of major academics. I think and fear today that most academics are not writing for that wider audience. I mean, you tell me what you think either of the Regis professors at Cambridge have contributed to the national debate. 
and I think we would have a yawning hole in our conversation. We could then move on to the professors of modern history at Oxford or Cambridge. We could move on to the professors of medieval history at Oxford and Cambridge. So actually, I think it's the there is a yawning gap there rather than, um, as it were, a concerted ploy or policy. There may well be too much weight um, given to certain people writing on uh, on historiography, conceptualization, methodology. Um, but my own view is that that tends to have less weight at the academic level uh, than often the writers of it um, writers of it anticipate. But that's just my own personal view. Uh, is there a, a school of thought which would say that actually what the the great professors at the fine universities are writing in a way doesn't matter beyond uh, the campus uh, or, or the, you know, the college court or quad uh, anymore because actually if you asked um, people in the country to name a historian, a British historian, they, they would probably say uh, uh, Simon Sharma or, 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 um, or Dan Jones or, 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 uh, or, or Dan Snow even. Um, um, and and these popularizers, I, I don't necessarily say that in a negative way. The, these these people who are able to convey, particularly Simon Sharma, who obviously is a leading historian, um, able to convey to a broader audience, actually still have that very broad impact. Well, first of all, let, let's take that again. Let's again unpick that. I agree with you entirely, and indeed, you know, if you look at my books on historiography, I have argued consistently that what I call public history is more important than academic history. So I agree with you. I think that was always the case. And I think um, certainly at the present day, uh, both television historians, as you mentioned, and also uh, brilliantly persuasive writers of more shall we say, um, sort of narrative biographical types, uh, Andrew Roberts, Simon Heffer, are, I think, infinitely um, having greater weight uh, than a lot that comes out of the academy. So, yes, I agree with you entirely. Um, as far as British history is concerned, there are some common flaws, though. I mean, I referred earlier to the failure to really engage adequately with the regional dimension within England, and I think that that is a common flaw. And you mentioned Simon Sharma. I mean, I, I, again, I wrote a review on the, both the first two series of his history. I thought there that was very Whiggish um, and in a way very dated. Um, and so I'm not sure I would hold that up for praise. But of course, he is a very different generation. I mean, you know, the Dan Jones, Dan Snows, James Hollands of this world are, you know, people who are below 60. I think Simon Chalmers, what, mid 70s. So he, in a sense, is a very different generation. And what would you recommend? Were you um, uh, an advisor to the government now in terms of what should be done at school level? Do we need a sort of Plato to NATO, or, or in this case, bead to Brexit, uh, grand, <laughs> grand narrative, uh, particularly in the early years of schooling, so that children get, get a sense of the, the, the chronology of events? Or is there not time for that? And actually, the, you know, given that there are only a few hours a week devoted to history, the, the, the modular approach for all its failings is actually the, the only option. Well, I personally think you need three levels. You need the local, the national and the world. 
I think you can vary the intensity of those depending upon which stage of the school career they're at. As you say, there are only a certain number of hours, but you are talking about quite a few years. Um, I think that that chronological framework is key. Within that, you can obviously focus on particular issues. It seems to me rather bizarre to look at the 19th century without focusing in particular on economic growth, for example. But I think that the modular approach doesn't work. It leaves people with um, assorted fragments, and it's rather like an oil painting in which people have, have painted in thickly little micro bits, uh, but have left large parts of the canvas blank. Well, uh, Professor Black, we have to leave it there, but uh, as ever, thank you very much for your insight. My pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.